Just a quick reminder that I do now have a second podcast called Track Nerds, where I have guests on to discuss travel, exercise, and movies and TV. Check it out. Okay, enjoy the show. Okay, today we tackle yet another David Lean epic, this time Dr. Shivago. A little different than Lawrence of Arabia in the sense that Lawrence was kind of about one figure in his adventures and how it affected World War I. Now, in Dr. Shivago, it's a fictional story, but set against a lot more action as far as basically, in a sense, the whole of the Russian Revolution. Again, not that the story in Lawrence Arabia was small, but it was like one part, one little piece of World War I as part of a larger whole. And the background of Dr. Shivago is basically bits of the entire Russian Revolution. But Dr. Shivago himself is fictional, and it's really just a romance story with the revolution as the background. But for the purposes of this project, it's the perfect movie to talk about the Russian Revolution of 1917. Is this a movie you'd seen before, Logan? Uh, no, I hadn't, uh, but I, I did really like it. Another big screenplay from uh, from Robert Bolt, same guy who wrote Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, dang, yeah. Another big performance from Omar Sharif. And obviously, you know, David Lean, so it's another big runtime. Yes, I, yes. I actually had to split this one up into two two watches. Sittings. Yeah, yeah. And hey, it's got that perfect intermission, though, for you to do so. If you need to, if you need to take a break, uh, the break is built in. Yeah, exactly. They, they, I think they, they took that into account. So before we dive into the movie, and again, it's kind of a different thing. We try to choose movies that kind of have one or the other, either historical figures or historical events. And this is one where it definitely has the historical events. But as we said, they're in the background. So we don't necessarily need to rehash all the details of the romance and the story itself. And I'm sure we'll get to a lot of it. But I really want to focus on the Russian Revolution itself. And I want to kind of give just the broad strokes version before we kind of talk about the movie, because I had a very superficial understanding. I think my knowledge was just that, yeah, at the tail end of World War One, the Soviets took over Russia and deposed the Tsar. And that's probably about as much detail as I had. Just, just right off the bat, I, I, I did. I definitely learned something researching after after this movie. So The Russian Revolution really kind of breaks down into two major pieces in 1917, the February Revolution and the October Revolution. So when you always hear people talk about the Bolshevik Revolution, that really just refers, it seems, to the October one. So again, the simple version is in February, as they're kind of basically they're withdrawing from World War One, they're just kind of disaffected, you know, lots of mutiny that the, the army just could not care less about being involved in World War One, and just ends up kind of defecting and pulling back. And this is the February Revolution when these soldiers basically join the masses and overthrow the monarchy. Is that about how you'd simplify it, Logan? Yeah, so it, it, it kind of it goes all the way back to the time period that we were talking about um, when we were talking about the first Russian Revolution. Of 1905, yes. Even, yeah, even even a little before that. There's just, you know, there was this huge, this massive disparity in quality of life between the workers of Russia and then the, you know, the, the ruling class or the uh, the bourgeoisie or whatever. And uh, so there's a, I actually, I saw a, a quote from uh, Tsar Nicholas II. It's in 1904, which is right before the first Russian Revolution in 1905. He said, I shall never agree to a representative form of government because I consider it harmful to the people whom God has entrusted to my care. Which, I mean, sounds a lot like, you know, Louis the same the reasons. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so in, in 1905, they had the, you know, the, the first kind of uh, workers revolt in Russia. It was it was unsuccessful. Tsar Nicholas II ultimately, you know, kept power after that. But basically his grip on the population just got lesser and lesser um, as time went on. You know, it's it's another one of those things where it's it's kind of like a perfect a perfect storm of compounding historical events that all lead to this you know this one big massive change um, in Russia. Which just like you said, you know, I was like, oh yeah, you know, Russian Revolution. People just kind of like wanted to be communist, and so that Russia just kind of <laughs> you know became communist. But it's really you know it was. Uh, over over decades, 
of you know building and building. Um, World War One was obviously a big a big part of it. It it had a huge impact on Russia. They suffered some pretty bad defeats uh, to the Germans in the uh, on the Eastern Front of World War One. I. I mean, we're, we're talking like tens of thousands of soldiers lost, you know, in a, in a single single battle. And so the people kind of held Tsar Nicholas II responsible for the poor performance um, of the Russian military in World War One, and rightly so, because he was, you know, the commander in chief at the time. Um, but then there was also additional factors like his wife, the Empress Alexandra, was born in Germany and had mm. a German family. And so they thought that she and then by extension, Nicholas II were German sympathizers. And then there's also Grigory Rasputin, <laughs> who is, I mean, we could do a whole series of episodes just <laughs> on him. But basically, the the Russian people thought that he had too much influence over the royal family. Some even thought that he had them like under a spell. Right, like hypnotized, like doing, yeah. Yeah, like doing magic on them. But man, what a life that guy lived. But yeah, we, we don't have to go into that on, on this episode. It's not really, you know directly important to the uh the russian revolution but true true but he was definitely one piece against them yeah yeah for sure if if uh, if people want to go down a rabbit hole the, <laughs> the rasputin rabbit hole is a good one to go down yes but yeah so is the the actual russian revolution itself yeah that there's the, the february revolution and the october revolution so on february 23rd in 1917 it was a a, a women's march in I believe St. Petersburg. Yes. Basically to celebrate International Women's Day. And then that march was kind of like just joined, not really co-opted, but joined by workers who then, you know, use that large use the people, you know, organizing to then carry their signs, you know, talking about, oh, we want workers' rights, you know, all power to the workers. So then the government, like they do, uh, send in soldiers and they say, hey, you know, crush this this protest that's going on and the, the soldiers show up and they're like, Hey, no, actually these guys have some pretty good points. I think we're going to, we're going to stick with these guys. And, uh, they ended up just growing and growing throughout the, the city, breaking a bunch of government stuff. And, uh, Basically, Nicholas II was convinced by his advisors that the only way for him to basically keep Russia together was to uh, abdicate. And uh, so he did um, in March. And that was the first time in over 300 years that a Romanov had not been uh, in power in Russia. Correct. And since you brought that up, just to kind of tie it back to Ivan the Terrible. So the Nicholas Romanov here was not a descendant of Ivan the Terrible, but Ivan the Terrible's wife was a Romanov. About 30 years after Ivan the Terrible, the Tsars kind of became the Romanov family and were for the last 300 years of the Russian Empire. But it wasn't descendants of Ivan the Terrible, but definitely his family. And they do have ties back to his time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is crazy that like, so yeah, basically going all the way back to your, to your Ivan the Terrible episode or just after that. And that whole time period up until this episode is the same family ruling Russia. Right. And again, we, we have similar, if you look at, you know, the, you know, Queen Elizabeth today and, you know, I mean. Right. That's, that's even longer. Right. Right. And, and and because, you know, the, the Georges that we were fighting during the American revolution are her direct ancestors, but, but yes. And then, yes, to your point, the February revolution ended with the abdication of the czar and the Russian army basically joined sides with the common people who were protesting. And as as you said, it was all just a culmination decades in the making this didn't come out of nowhere and i hate to say world war one was the straw that broke the camel's back because it was far from a straw but it was definitely the final linchpin i guess being pulled and just uh collapsing everything but again that was just basically phase one so at the end of the february revolution the provisional government or a provisional government was put in place and Basically, just try to kind of hold things together. Again, it's chaotic. Again, the French Revolution is probably just the perfect parallel here. And you just think of the chaos in the absence of the existing or the previous leadership. And it is just chaotic. So, But the provisional government was just trying to hold things together and probably wasn't doing a horrible job of it, all things considered. But you're trying to keep all these varying factions uh, happy. And again, you see it today. When, when we deposed Saddam Hussein... 
then what do you have? All these various factions vying for power. So that's basically what you right. have here. And it results in a civil war. Exactly. So it's almost then, like history repeats itself, Rich. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and or those who don't study it are doomed to repeat it. If Zard Nicholas had studied the French Revolution, he might have been able to pull this off a little better. Or hey, maybe he was just doomed. But yes. And so when we get to October. So the uh, provisional government didn't have a lot of time, but then that's when the Bolsheviks then seize power in October and overthrow the provisional government. So the Tsar had already been, uh, not he actually refused to be exiled. He stayed in Russia, but was no longer in power. And the Bolsheviks then, so the Bolshevik revolution is the October revolution when they basically oust the provisional government and to set themselves up. And there's even a moment in the movie where some of the soldiers are talking about, or actually, maybe it's actually just a common guy in the street is talking about, oh my gosh, can you believe it? Lenin's in Moscow. Lenin's in charge. So Lenin right. was the leader of the Bolsheviks, who then seized power in October. And he was a minor player before that, and definitely someone who, who had been advocating for revolution for decades, but he was the leader of the Bolsheviks, who then seized power in October. And then that's where you get Lenin being this figure of the new Soviet era. Right. So, yeah, because Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks, they were a pretty small political power in Russia, but they started to gain power and influence. And then especially after the February Revolution, they began to push this message of, you know, redistribution of wealth, redistribution of land, take it from the bourgeois, give it to the workers. And they set up Soviets is what they called them, which was just like people's councils all across the country. And then they, you know, they just slowly, you know, little by little started to just get a little more power, a little more power. And then uh, in October, the Bolshevik Revo- Revolution started and their Red Army moved on the on the uh, the Winter Palace in Petrograd and uh that was basically, you know, them saying, all right, now now we're in complete control. You know, we've been doing it little by little, but now it's it's all about us, all about the Bolsheviks. And then what I also didn't realize came right on the heels of that. Again, I don't know how I missed this, but then that then leads us into the Russian Civil War. It wasn't just like the Bolsheviks overthrow the provisional government and now they are in charge and that's the Soviet Union as it stood until, you know, the fall in the late 80s, early 90s. It was a few years of war of them kind of basically solidifying that control and getting rid of the factions. And again, we see it in the movie. So the Bolsheviks are kind of in control of the Red Army and we hear several mentions over and over again in the film of the White Army. And that's something I wasn't really familiar with and it wasn't anything necessarily super official. Basically, it was just all the people who weren't the Bolsheviks and weren't on their side. So it was actually a wide, wide swath. Everything from the people who basically thought the Bolsheviks need to be even more severe and, you know, maybe didn't like what the Bolsheviks weren't doing it. They weren't doing enough, but then also then more, you know, conservative, you know, czarists who wanted to restore the the emperor and, and everything in between. It was just everybody who wasn't the Bolsheviks. But over the course of a few years, the Bolsheviks ultimately won out. Yeah. And that was something else that, you know, that I didn't really understand before uh, researching this episode is that, yeah, the Russian Revolution and the Russian Civil War aren't like interchangeable terms. Yes, it's one after the other. Right. And then, uh, yeah, to your point about the White Army, it's like, and and it really was just anyone who wasn't the Bolsheviks, because there's like everything from like pro uh, pro fascist forces to other pro Soviet forces that maybe just had uh, or pro socialist forces, people that were sympathetic to you know Nicholas II. Like it's just this whole kind of hodgepodge of different groups that just all kind of have this this common enemy in the bolsheviks that was the the white army and it's and we don't need to get too into the weeds about the 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 military campaigns themselves but it's almost kind of surprising when you when we hear it phrased that way that it seems like the red army the bolsheviks would be overwhelmed just by numbers but i guess they just had enough support that it was they were able they were able to win out so even though it's multiple factions the numbers to some extent must have been on the red army side i mean i haven't I haven't broken well, all that down, it, but it was it was also a, a well a huge factor into their success was the fact that the territory that they controlled was like most of Western Russia. So like if you look on it on a map by landmass, obviously the White Army had more percentage of Russia under their control, but the Red Army had you know Saint Petersburg and Moscow and all these industrial areas and all of these resources in their territory so even though it was small they were kind of set up for success a little better so the white army would have won the electoral college 
Right. <laughs> um, oh, um, well, so after the uh, after the October Revolution, which I, I think you, you mentioned already, but uh, Nicholas refused to go into exile outside of Russia. He and his family did get moved around a couple times within Russia. But eventually, you know, they were all uh, executed, which they do mention in the movie. Um, they talk about the, the czar being executed. And uh, this is another rabbit hole that uh, people can go down if they want to. Um, the controversy. Anastasia. Right. Surrounding Anastasia. But the scientific consensus is that she she's definitely dead. I mean, they, between renderings and, and modeling of, of the skulls found, you know, where where the burial site was and, and DNA testing, it's pretty much all but certain that Anastasia died at the same time that the rest of her family yeah, did. Yeah, for, yeah. For those who don't know the legend of Anastasia, she was one of the czar's daughters who legend had it had escaped and grew up and then you know you know again there's there's various stories about anastasia and that's kind of the pretense of those but it didn't happen <laughs> she died just with, yeah. along with all the rest of her family um i did think it was interesting though too they said that even to this day there are a few factions that wouldn't mind seeing the, some of the distant romanovs reinstated oh really it's like it's a super popular thing but yeah it even cited someone born in like the i swear it was someone who was maybe even still alive today in the united states who was a romanov and like a distant cousin or something and i, I didn't research it too much but i just kind of saw that uh and again this is something that will never happen has no actual large-scale popular support but it's one of those things yeah a few people wouldn't mind to see it go back to that way especially since you know russia is not as democratic as it pretends to be right yeah and and i had seen too that pretty much since the fall of the soviet union that the actual lineage of Romanov, like for people alive today, is under dispute. Oh, true. That's probably fair. It's this. It's the subject of debate between those families. Oh, you know, we're the true Romanovs. No, we're the true Romanovs because we had, you know, we're descended from this guy. You know, but mm, yeah, that'll happen. And then uh, just a, a quick note on terminology. You already kind of did mention that Soviets just mean councils, and that's something I had no idea about. So when you hear the Soviet Union, basically it just means a union of all the councils that then ostensibly represent the common people. So right. we're the United States, they're basically the United Soviets, Soviets being councils, which I hadn't thought of it that way before. And I was trying to figure out the term, what the term Bolshevik meant, but it really does just sound like it was just the name of the party. And basically it's just from the Russian for great. So basically it's just, they had this group of Marxists who called themselves the great faction. And that's really right. all Bolshevik means. So it, it, there's no super special term behind that. It's just the name of the party that happened to win. Right. Yeah. So the movie itself, we, 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 I, I do, do want to discuss it briefly. Even though, again, the story in the movie is all fictional, but it does deal with uh, some, some interesting things. And again, it is a really good movie. I mean, this is kind of one of those all-time classic epics, again, from, from David Lean, you know, following just a few years after he gave us Lawrence of Arabia. So there's a framing device that I kind of got the feeling it didn't look like it's necessarily in the book, but it, it starts with our good pal Alec Guinness of Obi-Wan Kenobi fame, who was also in Lawrence of Arabia. And he's just kind of a Soviet officer and they don't tell us exactly when probably the late thirties, early forties. And Oh, I saw, I saw late forties, early fifties. Oh, sorry. Like yes. A, like yeah. just okay. post world war two Russia. basically. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. So late forties, early fifties. And he brings a worker in and it kind of asks her what she knows of her family. Cause his theory is she's the basically long lost daughter of his half brother, Yuri Zhivago. And then they just kind of use that as a framing. It's almost kind of unnecessary, honestly, other than kind of there's kind of a neat little tie in at the end. But basically, it just gives us a reason to flashback and tell the story of Yuri Shivago. It is just kind of a nice look at well, nice isn't the right word, but a good look at Russia during the time. So they go back and they start with his funeral and then they jump ahead and he's training as a doctor. But his true love is poetry. And it's, it's kind of neat how they do it. So basically, it's set up to be this love story between Yuri and Lara and you kind of see them both separately dealing with their own things and their own romantic relationships so it's almost like you only know because of the framing device that they're going to ultimately kind of end up together but they're just kind of like background characters in each other's lives and then I don't know if it said exactly are they in St. Petersburg because they're kind of in during a lot of those demonstrations then right we see the demonstrations or those other demonstrations in the country I, I don't know exactly where they were so I 
it didn't seem like that would have been a big enough demonstration. And I don't know if that was just because of the limitations of the filmmakers or if they were just, you know, showing, you know, this is a demonstration at the time. For some reason, I thought that they were in Moscow, but I don't remember one way or the other. OK, uh, if they if they if they said what city they were in, because I know like when they go to the Urals that a lot of those cities are, are fictionalized versions of real Russian cities. OK, but yeah, so we started seeing a lot of the Russian stuff in the background and. It's definitely interesting. So basically, Yuri's kind of destined to marry his almost stepsister, which was kind of weird. <laughs> because basically, when his yeah. parents, yeah, his mom dies, and so he's raised by one of her friends, and they have a daughter his age, who basically, it was almost kind of just an arranged marriage thing. And so I think they just kind of grew up knowing they would one day get married, and it, it's just kind of bizarre. Versus uh, Laura's story is definitely a little more, far more seedy in that she basically ends up in a involuntary affair of sorts with one of her mom's friends, or I thought it was her stepfather at first. They they don't come right out and tell you, so it gets a little confusing when you're trying to recount it. But, I mean, it still all flows well in the story. You're just kind of like, who is this guy? And side note, so the because he's a major character for the rest of their lives here in the story, but... Rod Steiger is who plays the Komarovsky guy who ends up actually mm-hmm. uh, raping her when she uh, basically says she wants to marry this other revolutionary figure. So I had to go back in and uh, just yesterday watch uh, a clip from In the Heat of the Night to see the difference in Rod Steiger in those two roles. And my mind was blown watching him as Karamovsky here and then just... Two years later, he's the the cop in In the Heat of the Night, like the main non Sydney Portier cop. And yeah, I was just like, oh my gosh! I think I just became a huge Rod Steiger fan because it's uh, it's insanely impressive how diverse and separate those. Because I, I couldn't even get it in my mind that that was the same person until I watched the clips of uh, In the Heat of the Night again. You you could definitely see that it was the same person. But holy cow, does he just disappear completely into both of those roles? I need to need to track down some more Rod Steiger stuff. Yeah, and another uh, casting history note for the uh, for the film nerds in the audience: uh, <laughs> Tanya, who is oh, uh, Yuri's yes. wife, is Geraldine Chaplin, who is the daughter of Charlie Chaplin, yes, and the mother of Una Chaplin, who people will probably recognize. They might not recognize the name, but they would probably recognize her face if they're. Uh, Game of Thrones fans. Oh, no, who is she in that? I, I wasn't familiar with this. Una Chaplin? Yeah. She's uh, she's Talissa Stark. Talissa? Uh, the girl that marries Rob Stark and then gets pregnant and then murdered at the Red Wedding. Uh, spoiler alert for <laughs> those who haven't seen. Okay, Rob <laughs> Stark's wife. I, okay, Rob, because it's different than the book. So Rob Stark's wife is Charlie Chaplin's granddaughter? Yes. Holy cow! <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh. Okay, complete tangent here. The other one I actually just realized uh, was... Uh, oh, because it was after I just watched uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So they have R- Rowan Plansky as a character in that. So I was kind of researching Plansky, Plansky a little bit after that, which, you know, isn't a lot of fun to do. But Plansky's daughter is in the show Vikings. And she really? marry, she marries Rolo in Vikings. So I was like, just kind of randomly seeing, oh, I wonder if his, oh, his kid's an actress. I wonder if she's done anything I've seen. Oh, yes, I've just been watching her recently in Vikings. And I was like, I had no idea that it was Roman Polanski's daughter. I mean, of course, she, I mean, she was born when he was in his 60s or whatever. But right. I, just, I just thought that was uh, another interesting tie-in. Hey, that's right. You get history and movies here, everybody. <laughs> and sometimes both at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, occasionally. <laughs> So, it, so the, yeah, the show just covers, I, I mean, we don't need to go into everything here. The show covers just a, a lot, a lot of time. It uses basically, because it probably starts, uh, actually, the, the note here on Wikipedia says it starts in 1913. So after, well, after the flashback when he's a little kid, basically when we're showing Yuri going to medical school, it's in 1913. So we're still, basically, World War One hasn't broken out yet. And we just kind of meet all the characters that are going to be involved and kind of see them where they're at. And then as the war affects everybody and causes everybody to kind of just be, you know, torn apart and all throughout the country. And what ultimately brings Laura and Yori together is, so they're just kind of near the front and he's just kind of lending his help as a doctor. And she had a yeah, list. I think 
he's a doctor and she's like a nurse. Yeah, she had enlisted as a nurse to honestly to help find her husband, which is kind of a neat thing in how they kind of worked him in. He's kind of this young idealist and definitely a revolutionary. It's hard to say specifically which faction he would be in here, but definitely a a revolutionary and far, you know, left communist kind of kind of one. And we think he's killed in battle during World War One, and then actually they even kind of use it as the inter- the big cliffhanger at the end of the first act before they go to intermission when it's revealed that this big communist, not warlord, but basically a, a big guy in the in for the Red Army, and because he, he's got a different name, and then they cut to him, and it, it's it's Laura's husband who we thought was killed, so she had right. uh, joined in to be a nurse to ha- try to track him down, while we still think he's dead. Anyway, then her and Yuri end up just kind of working together in this town, healing the wounded after battle and just kind of just doing the medical thing for six months. And they basically fall in love, although they keep it chaste at that time. And then he goes back to his wife and kid, and she has a kid with presumably the revolutionary. I think the timeline didn't work out that it wasn't from the Komarovsky guy that raped her. It was actually, I think, enough time had passed that it was right. the revolutionary's kid. And then they yeah. kind of don't see each other for a while. And again, just the Russian Revolution continues to progress and forces basically them. Oh, that's kind of the heartbreaking part. This, that was the part I remember from seeing this movie before. I'd seen it once before, 10, 15 years ago. And like the one thing I remembered for whatever reason was when Yuri comes home and they were well off. So he comes back to their giant house and there's like 13 families living there because oh yeah this is the whole communist thing so if you had money you were taking up more resources than you needed and you needed to share that with the common people and oh it's man it's, it's so i guess i just felt so indignant on his behalf because yuri seems to take it in stride but it's mostly because i think he understands the dangers of not taking it in stride but just how rude they were he's basically saying like oh yeah that's cool this house was too big for us anyway and she's just being the the lady who's now in charge of the house is just being downright rude about how they were just hogging all this space and this house could fit 13 people and how dare you be living here with just one family he's like yeah i agree it's like it's and it's not enough for her just to to think that and like to take his stuff she has to like make him feel bad about being a rich guy before <laughs> right right and it's and it's tough and i do want to get into the whole we're gonna we're gonna get into capitalism versus communism and all that stuff here too but it was really really frustrating just to see i mean again he just took it all in stride but again i think that was mostly a sort of rival mechanism on his on his half and realizing that if he had fought it he would get possibly murdered <laughs> yeah and then so they end up so why exactly were they forced out uh toward the urals was it just um, because his brother so uh or yeah half brother or half yeah alginus yeah 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 alginus tells him that he's read his poetry and that it, it's not friendly enough to the the party to the right it's not friendly enough to the party so he should probably uh get out of moscow because eventually someone's probably going to have a problem with it so that's where they uh, they get on the train. That's right. And they travel to the Urals, which is when, you know, people start talking. Oh, yeah. You know, there's this guy, Strindlikov, Strindlikov. Yeah, he's, yeah. you know, he's he's this, you know, this real this badass warfighter. And then, you know, that's we you know find out that it's actually Pasha from the uh, from the right. beginning. Laura's but, Laura's husband, Laura's husband. But, yeah. And that was a something else that was funny, too, was where they they kind of uh, demonstrate the sort of. I don't know if it'd be considered cognitive dissonance, but when they when they get to their their home in the Urals and it's been uh, locked up, like basically the doors locked shut, yeah. And there's the sign on the door that says like this, you know, home is you know now the the property of the people. And Yuri's dad says, "Well, I'm one of the people too," and he's getting ready to break the lock off of his right, own house. Right. You're like, no, you can't do that. That they consider you counter revolutionary, and they shoot counter revolutionaries. <laughs> right, but yeah, just the line that like it's like, oh, this house is for the people. Well, I'm one of the people. Then, gosh dang it, yeah. And and no one's using it either, which I right. thought was kind of funny too. So they they lock it up and they say no one can live here. This is the property of the people. You know, it's being it's you know for use by the people, but no one is ever there the entire time that they're there. Right. Yeah, it's just kind of been earmarked. But then basically, the was it kind of the guest house or the servants' quarters or whatever other cabin right next to that they ended up moving into because yeah. it wasn't locked up. Because, again, I think it was just seen as lower class, so it was therefore acceptable. So they ended up living there. And then, of course, 
Uh, who does he run into that tells him? Oh no, it's when he runs into. So yeah, when the the train is kind of just stopped for a little bit, and Yuri just kind of just taking a walk and wanders off, and he finds uh, Strelnikov or however you say it, and basically they kind of imply that he's one of the only people who had an interview with Strelnikov who survived, and it's because right. his connection to Laura, and he's actually very easily and because oh, because he was around when Laura confronted uh, Komarovsky at the beginning and. Pasha, whatever came and take, took him away, and so basically they have enough of a common background from what we've seen earlier in the movie that uh, Strelnikov lets him go, and he mentions that Lara is in this town near where this cabin is. Yeah, and and because Strelnikov didn't recognize him at first. Well, they really never met. Met. Right. Yeah. I, I guess you're right. Yeah. Because, but yeah, because Yuri says, you know, oh, I've I've seen you before. Like I know who you are. And he's like, well, when did you see me? He's like, oh, well, you know, I was helping the people, you know, the some of the injured people after, you know, your first demonstration in Moscow. And that kind of endears him to Strenlikov, you right. know, at least enough to where. And to get our timeline, I guess, a little cleaned up. He says uh, Christmas Eve six years ago, which, again, if we started around 1913, that means this is probably around 1919 now. So World War One is over, but we're in that Russian Civil War we mentioned. Right. Yeah. Because it was it's during the I think it's during either during or right after the February Revolution is when they're in the hospital. And then by this time, it's after Russian Civil War and after uh, the Bolshevik Revolution towards the tail end. Well, it's it's not after the Civil War. This is it's still during the Civil War, but towards the tail end of the of the Russian Civil War. Yes, everything's kind of just uh, ironing itself out. And then Yuri ends up kind of finding Lara again, and they they start an affair. I kind of got the feeling watching the movie this time that, like, man, I really just need to read this book. Because I definitely felt like, again, I still like the story, I still like the movie, but you feel like a lot of stuff is just getting rushed through that I would kind of like to see explored more. It's so like the idea that he has actually a second kid with Tanya that we just never see. The movie just never even sees her again. And he has a kid with Laura, which again, that's the whole idea. That's the whole framing device is Alec Guinness is, you know, in the quote unquote future talking to this girl that's probably their kid. So just all these different relationships. And he does, honestly, he loves both women, but he just kind of feels like Laura is his soulmate versus his wife is just this woman he grew up with who he's fond of. But there's not that same right. kind of connection. So um, everybody kind of ends up, you know, with, with just with the war, and he gets conscripted, you know, to he's voice forced to serve as as a doctor. And again, in the movie, it doesn't it doesn't take enough time. So he leaves Laura, says he's never coming back because his wife is pregnant, and I got to do what's right. And he gets captured by the communists and put to work as a doctor, and then escapes and goes back to find Laura. Well, in the movie, that's like ten minutes. Well, I was looking online, it said like, oh, it was two years. I'm like, oh, yeah. well, I don't think the movie yeah. super properly illustrated that. And I think a book, it would, it, would be, it would probably do a lot better job of that. So basically, he never sees his wife again. They've left Russia. And, oh, that's right. And that's where Komarovsky comes back, who honestly is sincerely trying to do right by them and help them get out of the country. Because, one, Yuri's poetry is still going to be an issue. And he's going to be seen as an enemy of the party. And, two... Lara, now that Shronikov has uh, uh, been, well, killed himself on his way to his own execution when he became on the outs with the party, and she was basically the bait they were kind of using uh, or holding over him or whatever, so she's now at risk and because her daughter is Shronikov's kid. So basically, they both got to right. get out of the country. There's not enough space. I didn't really get exactly. Why did Yuri hang back there when she went off with Shronikov? Was it just literally not enough space on the sled or whatever? No, I I thought it was because it was like his principle. He didn't want to accept help from. So he basically lied to Laura just to get her out of the country. Right. Basically, he's like, you know, he he lied to her and he was able to like have enough logic <laughs> and rational thought to to realize, OK, yes, this is the way that Laura will survive. But it just, you know, he just couldn't accept help from Komarovsky. At least that's that's how I interpret. OK, it. I no, that, that's that's probably fair. I, mean, I, th- I thought they do kind of just maybe gave that a little bit of short shrift or whatever. So where she's headed, though, is actually not to Europe. They're actually going all the way out east to the other side of Russia because and I, basically if they thought from there they'd be able to get out of the country. Or what, what was it? It was, uh, it was more of a white-controlled area where they thought they'd be able to avoid the Reds and get out of the country. I thought. Yeah, and and actually, at at the time, it was its own 
semi-autonomous yes. uh, country called the Far East Republic. Yes. Okay. And then Yari, or sorry, Yuri ends up there for work. I mean, I, I don't know why I'm. I just watched it the other day, and basically runs across. He's on the train, and he's and oh, his brother hooked him up with the job. That's what it was. And yeah. his brother gets him on the train, and then while he's in the train, it's crowded. He sees Laura just randomly walking by on the street, and in his excitement and struggle to get to her. He dies of a heart attack without her ever realizing he was trying to get her attention, which again is you know from the love story standpoint is is very very tragic. And then back in our present future, whatever, where uh, Alec Guinness is kind of telling this to his potential niece, he's finally got her mostly convinced that yes, these were probably her parents. That everything kind of works out with her own timeline and her own vague memories of her mom. And that's basically the end of the movie. And they do the little almost kind of like Rosebud from Citizen Kane thing, where the girl's got the same instrument that Yuri had got from his mom that we saw at the very beginning. And so there's kind of some neat little relationships things there. But it, it really did want to, I have the book sitting on my bookshelf, and I have for a long time, but I've just never gotten around to reading it. And I think this viewing of the movie really made me want to kind of pick it up and dig into it, just because I think I got the feeling this movie's as good as it is, is a really, really rushed version of a story that I could see being uh, spelled out a lot better in a novel. Yeah, yeah. And that going back to the uh, the instrument, that's kind of like the way that we know that Alec Guinness's character is convinced because he he was he already sees... convinced. But that's oh, not, I think that's see, convinced, I, that convinced us as the audience. I thought I thought she was leaving and he was still like, well, I'm not 100 percent sure. And then he sees the balalaika, uh, which okay. is that that instrument. And then he asks her if she can play it, and it's like her fiance or boyfriend or whoever is there, and he's like, "Oh yeah, she's you know she's awesome at it." And he goes, "Ah, then it's a gift." Like, okay, that's you know that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Now I'm now I'm convinced. True. Yeah, I guess he might have been had a little doubt based on her doubt, and then saw that and was like, "Okay." And they just kind of leave it there. You don't know if there's ever going to be a connection between those two. And she didn't seem super interested that he was her uncle, which I thought was kind of odd. But she was also just yeah. super skeptical. But again, I think you're also at a time. Again, this is now right way into Soviet Russia. And man, I think everyone just wanted to keep their head down. And <laughs> he's an official. Yeah. I'm just going to not do anything that gets me tied into anything that's going to end up with me dead. Yeah, because he's like pretty high up officer in the KGB talking to this worker and uh yeah she she's super standoffish basically for their whole interview because you know even though his intentions are genuine you know she she doesn't know that right maybe and it's all a trick I'm or something sure yeah. she's seen i'm sure she's seen enough of her friends you know oh hey you know so-and-so from the kgb wants to talk to you and you just never see that guy again yes so okay so the author boris pasternak uh he was a russian native and the book was written in 1957, it looks like, and was, not surprisingly, rejected for publication in, in the Soviet Union and had to be smuggled into Italy where it was published and actually quickly led to Pasternak winning the Nobel Prize for literature in 1958, which is not, I don't know, I don't know how often it goes to more of like, it's always, so I always thought it was like a lifetime achievement thing. So it's, it's kind of fascinating that this book was kind of so impactful that it gave him, got him a Nobel Prize for literature just a year after his publication. But basically, he wasn't allowed to accept it because uh, Russia was like, sorry, I keep saying Russia, we should, we should say the, the Soviet Union. They were basically like, no, you don't get to accept it. But his, his descendants actually later accepted it on his behalf in 1988, right around the time uh, the Soviet Union was coming to an end. And that's really all about I had on him. I, did, I just did want to mention that, you know, it wasn't as simple as he was not in Russia or he was a Russia and the Soviet Union had no problem with this book. And again, they, they, they definitely found reasons to have problems with anything that wasn't straight propaganda, it would seem. Yeah, which speaking of straight up propaganda regarding the uh, the Russian Revolution, the director of Battleship Potemkin, Sergei oh, Eisenstein. Eisenstein. Yeah, he uh, he directed a movie uh, about the October Revolution called October: Ten Days That Shook the World. That was apparently very very popular there. Oh, okay, so just a, a little connection to a past episode. 
Yeah, and and always worth mentioning that uh, I do like to you know talk about other other movies that cover the same the same time period. So even obviously even to go in and track down a a version of Anastasia is in theory tied to the legend that one of the Romanov family had survived. And then so I guess so I guess the show uh, there's multiple movies I think on Anastasia, and I guess they would be set basically around what ni- late 1920s, early 1930s when that girl would be then full grown. Yeah. Um, I did want to talk about our boy Omar Sharif here. I thought it was kind of interesting. So the two movies he's most known for are the ones we've just watched here with uh, Lawrence of Arabia and him getting the lead in Dr. Shivago. He's also, I guess, uh, a major role in Funny Girl with Barbara Streisand, which I have seen, but not recently enough that I remember specifically what uh, his role in that is. So yeah, he is... Egyptian or born in Egypt, uh, family was actually Catholic Lebanese, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. Uh, he converted to Islam when he when he married another Egyptian actress, and he graduated from Cairo University, majoring in math and physics. And then his his dad had like a uh, carpentry business that he helped with, and then he got into acting and just got really really successful. He was just a natural and just became a really successful actor in Egypt on the kind of stage and screen there. And his first English language movie was Lawrence of Arabia. So I just thought that was, that was fascinating. And uh, so what's neat is too. So I guess, and he kind of said too, when he was at school, he had a knack for languages. He was kind of then this, this perfect storm and similar to kind of an Anthony Quinn who can kind of disappear into any kind of nationality. That's kind of the skill that Omar Sharif had that he was really, really good at languages. And, and here's like actually a quote from uh, Sharif where he says, I spoke French, Greek, Italian, Spanish, and even Arabic. And so basically the idea of just, you know, he could play anyone from anywhere and no one would have a problem with it. He just kind of fits as anything. So, yeah, he's Arab in Lawrence of Arabia. He's Russian here. And we're like, yep, seems about right. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then he just died in uh, 2015 of a heart attack, I think it was. So just someone who... Again, it's a it's a name. If you're into movies, you definitely recognize, but not someone I you know grew up as a big fan of necessarily, especially since he was kind of before our time. But uh, oh, and then the other cool thing about Omar Sharif, and I had never heard this, so he was a world class bridge player. Really, like he he would actually go to like world competitions playing bridge, and was I guess at one time ranked in the top fifty in the world, and was doing all these competitions on behalf of you know various arab teams and egyptian teams in bridge competitions that i didn't even know existed at the at the world <laughs> level but uh yeah oh and he was his family was friends of like the egyptian king and like the egyptian king at the time ended up being like buddies with his mom and stuff so just kind of an interesting guy with an interesting life oh yeah here's probably what led to his heart problems so he supposedly had a smoking habit of 100 cigarettes a day before he had a oh, bypass wow. operation in 1992, and then ultimately had a fatal heart attack in 2015. Anyway, interesting guy, great actor, and yeah, definitely check out stuff with him in it if you haven't already. Uh, the movie itself was nominated for 10 Oscars, winning five of them, so a very successful movie. Now, it did not win for David Lean. It actually won mostly the technical awards, so it didn't win for any of the actors or for David Lean directing. But it lost out Best Picture to The Sound of Music, which is, you know, even if you haven't seen many movies from the 60s, you've definitely heard of at least The Sound of Music. It's kind of one of those all-time Hollywood classics. So that's what it took to beat Dr. Shivago. And honestly, looking at the other nominees here, I don't think there's anything else that would have beat it. So I would I would imagine with 10 nominations, and it was probably an easy second place in, in that field that year. Because, yeah, you yeah, even got, like, other ones are kind of, like, you got a couple comedies and just kind of a femme fatale movie or something. So, yeah, it, it was definitely probably the second choice there. So the last thing I wanted to talk about is kind of just uh, Marxism and communism in general. Because I think we're going to get into it more because we're going to have here in just, uh, uh, we're not too far off from talking about then the, the Chinese revolution where they're going to oust their emperor and set up a communist country that still, unlike Russia, still uh, exists to the modern day. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk about communism and basically just the, the superficial research I did today kind of just reinforced what I had already kind of had in mind. So 
Karl Marx and his view of communism or socialism is kind of that utopia where basically the idea is the problem that you saw in the French Revolution and the Russian Russian Revolution where the working class is struggling, yet they're the ones doing all the work. That's kind of the simplest version of it. But now Marx, I think, envisioned more of a utopian society where, and again, the famous Marx phrase is even basically from each according to his ability to each according to his need. So basically, everyone helps each other as much as they can, and we're not really worried about who owns stuff. You know, it almost seems like maybe even like a Native American view of it, where it's just like everybody helps the community commune communism like it's all tied to everybody helping together so theoretically it makes sense and is a utopia the problem arises when you try to implement this in reality and again i don't i'm definitely not an expert on all this and they talk about how lenin had kind of you know different views of it and you know lenin was all about revolution and then of course you could when you get into something like stalin it definitely becomes just a power play and the you know, the nice ideal of power to the people kind of just ends up as the tool that ambitious men use to put themselves into power. And then, of course, the pro-capitalism argument is, well, then you need you need incentive. You know, so where's the incentive? If everyone shares everything, why should I do anything? And that motivation's gone. So then it just becomes implemented by force. And then if you're against the, the social order, you're now an enemy. And, of course, you know, you get into Stalin, who just killed so many of his own people. And, of course, we'll get into that in World War II and all that. Oh, yeah. And again, as far as the political spectrum in general, again, this is kind of my rough understanding where the farther left, quote unquote, left you go is where you kind of go from, you know, what we see maybe of our left political parties in the United States. But then if you go extreme left again, you know, so it's, you know, the left tends to want more social welfare programs and stuff like that to kind of help out the downtrodden taken to the extreme. That's forced communism where everything is equal by force and everyone is forced to help. And that and then of course then the extreme right is a little more maybe nationalistic pride and us versus them and it's you know, we want to make sure we got ours and other countries are maybe our potential enemies and there might be enemies within that we need to get rid of and that's where you get into fascism and hypernationalism and that we'll see yes. with the Nazi party. And so those are kind of right. the two extremes and now so as far as the potential communist utopia, what it ultimately leaves out, and again, at least to, to my understanding, freedom. So in the United States, and again, I, I'm going a little America on us here, but so the idea <laughs> is freedom. And so we in the United States see freedom as kind of this important thing. So yes, it's nice if everybody is helping everybody else, but one, human nature doesn't realistically allow for that in a rational way. And the idea of oh, well, I'm a really gifted physician, but I'd rather be a poet. No, you're going to be a doctor or we're going to kill you. Like, it takes that freedom away. It takes that agency away. And then that just leads to an unhealthy, toxic society. So I I do think starting with freedom is a great place to go. And again, we don't need to get any deeper about, you know, today's current uh, American political system. But I do think starting with freedom is a nice thing. Freedom is what's left out of, I think, both those fascists and communists when they're taking things to either extreme, right or left. Any right, thoughts on absolutely. That? Which is a lot of the major conflicts of the 20th century that we're about to get into in upcoming episodes are framed that way, and it's because they they were that way. You know, the United States with its ideals of freedom versus you know either a, a fascist government like the Nazis or communists like in in the Cold War. One note that I had here that does kind of go to this whole, you know, absence of freedom thing or uh, even absence of, of free thought, really, is the uh, the propaganda in school when uh, Yuri's or no, it's not Yuri's daughter. It's uh, Laura's daughter brings her her homework home um, and they were talking to You know, she says, oh, the, the czar, he's a he's an enemy of the people or he, he's an enemy of the state. I don't remember what what specific term she uses, but basically the school's. Uh, started indoctrinating basically right away indoctrinating kids communism is the best you know the czar he sucks you know we we killed him he's an he's an enemy 
I just thought that was that was interesting. And it does kind of go to the to the point of freedom in that the teaching of, of all ideas wasn't considered equal, basically. Like, you know, you had just this, it was basically the only education that these, that they were getting at the time was the uh, propaganda. But Okay, here's the, here's the quote I would, this may all made me think of. It's actually by Benjamin Franklin. Okay. Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. So it's kind of that, it's kind of that whole police state. So it's, it's the whole, Oh, because things are a little scary right now, we're going to give up our freedom to help protect us. But then that ends up becoming a slippery slope and taking away all your freedoms just in the name of security. So I wrote down from the beginning of the movie, getting Harvey Weinstein vibes from Victor. Ugh. That was like maybe like five minutes before the rape scene with Laura. And then my next, my very next note is Victor equals, and then in all caps, asshole. Yeah. Oh, and of course, oh, his quote is devastating. Because she kind of just gives in at some point. Right. And when, oh, when he's leaving, he says, and don't delude yourself that this was rape. That would degrade us both. Yeah. It's like, oh my, oh. Yeah. Yeah, just just disgusting. And and again, they just kind of, I don't know, I hate you hate to ever redeem someone like that. And I'm not saying he was redeemed, but life's complicated and they kind of illustrate that with you know basically honestly it's probably what a decade or two later that he kind of comes back and is is honestly trying to help him out and not by any particular sense of remorse it's just yeah yeah it's 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 a mess it's a mess and you forget that horrible people can still have done good things i mean honestly use uh use bill cosby so obviously the crimes of bill cosby are unconscionable but the guy also did a lot of things to like benefit young children and a lot of his organizations and philanthropic things. Like those still happened. He still did those good things, but yet was also a monster behind closed doors. The both right. exist. And it's just we just I think we have a tendency to want to black and white it. And I'm not saying he was a good guy. He ultimately was a bad guy, but who did good things that did help people. And Well and and I can see I can totally see where people are coming from when they say, well, you know, we shouldn't continue to like idolize people like that, or, you know, it's problematic to use that word, what, you know, whatever that word means anymore. Uh, it's problematic when you, you know, if you put the art of someone who you know is a bad person on a pedestal. But personally, I, I think that it's okay to separate the art from the person to an extent, which this is, is kind of getting way, way off track. But uh, <laughs> going back, you, you mentioned Roman Polanski earlier. Oh, right. You know, obviously, he, you know, did some some stuff that was uh, that was not so awesome. And I, uh, raped, let's say it. Let's say it. He raped a thirteen-year-old girl. Right. Yeah. Obviously. Yes. That's terrible. But are his movies bad because of that? I don't necessarily think so. Right. And I still watch them, and I still enjoy them, and I still think that they're good. And a lot of them are still in important movies, even. Right. Or I mentioned his daughter. He still had a daughter, and I don't know what her relationship with him is. And he has more than one kid, but specifically this daughter, who is a current working actress and has her own life, and this man is her father. So mm -hmm. that's got to be complicated. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we got on a little tangent there, but again, that's all right. It's all, it's all still within the realm of history and movies, which is what this podcast is about. So exactly, if you enjoy this kind of talk, join us again next week when we move on to Viva Zapata. So we're still dealing with all these revolutions, and we're going to get to several of them over the next few weeks. And next week, we'll take us to Mexico during a revolutionary period there in 1909 to 1919 with Viva Zapata starring Marlon Brando.